And I hope that you will join me there in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Having now moved through 1 Samuel and hitting the high points, a book that we worked through chapter by chapter and verse by verse a couple of years ago, we're now prepared to embark on a verse-by-verse study of 2 Samuel, part of the same book by the same author. And as we do that, you may wonder, why are we preaching through books like that? That may be novel to you or unusual to you, especially a book like 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel. The reason is because the kind of preaching that I try to do is called expository preaching. Instead of scanning the headlines and trying to figure out what would be most relevant or or most interesting or what might get the most attention, I start with the Word of God because I start with the assumption that God has spoken. God has already spoken. And what you need and what I need more than anything else is to hear God speak. You don't need another talking head. You don't need another commentary on the headlines. We need to hear from the Lord. And the Lord has been gracious enough to speak. And so my job is to exposit or to explain what God has already said as clearly and as accurately as I can. And I believe the best way to do that is not by jumping around depending on what topic seems interesting or relevant and not by following someone else's prescribed schedule or whatever's on the calendar. I'm not ignorant of what's on the calendar. I'm not ignorant of the headlines. But we start here. We start here. And we listen for God to speak as God has revealed himself through the sequence of the books of the Bible. And I believe this is the best way to read the Bible and the best way to understand what God has communicated in the Bible. But one effect of all of that is that you are forced to read passages, and I am forced to preach passages that strike us as weird and that maybe run against the grain of our contemporary sensibilities. And certainly that's the case with this story we read of in the first chapter of Second Samuel. What do we do with this? And if you're saying to yourself, I've never heard a sermon on the first chapter of Second Samuel, you're in good company. I haven't either that I know of. Nevertheless, this is the Word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and it is good for us, and it is useful, and it is true. And so we need to listen. We need to listen. So right off the bat, we're told that King Saul is dead. He's dead. And while we would expect David to rejoice in that truth, or at least to express relief at that news, 
he doesn't do anything of the sort. He grieves. He mourns. He fasts. He tears his clothes. He's upset. And we have to wonder, why on earth is he reacting this way? After all, the, the whole second half of the book of 1 Samuel has been devoted to this cat and mouse game between Saul and David. And we've seen how Saul wants nothing more than to kill David so that David doesn't have a chance to move Saul off the throne of Israel. And while David has, has had plenty of opportunities to, to exact revenge on Saul or to relieve himself from this danger, he hasn't. Time and time again, he has said to Saul, look, I'm not against you. I don't want you dead. And still, Saul persists in trying to kill David until he has no more opportunity. So why on earth does David grieve at the death of his enemy? Maybe it's because he's also lost his best friend, Jonathan. When Saul was killed by the Philistines, his three sons were also killed with him. And no doubt David feels sadness over the loss of Jonathan. But that can't totally explain this reaction. Maybe David is also informed by the wisdom described in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17, where we read, Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble. Do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. God's people are not to gloat at the downfall of our enemies, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've said. And the reason is because our response is to mirror God's own response to the downfall of the wicked and his enemies. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? While it is good and it is right for God to execute judgment against the wicked and to not allow sin to go unpunished, God doesn't take any pleasure in that. He doesn't take delight. And therefore, His people who are to be holy as He is holy are not to take delight in the downfall of our enemy. So that's probably motivating some of David's response, but I still don't think that explains all of it. Ultimately, we need to take a closer look at verse 12, where we read, They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan 
and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Ultimately, why is David grieving? It's because God's people, Israel, have been humiliated. Humiliated on the battlefield by none other than their arch enemies, the Philistines, the people of Goliath, the giant. God has allowed the Philistines to not only defeat, but to humiliate his people. Because if you just go back to the prior chapter, the very end of 1 Samuel, we see that after they kill King Saul and his sons, they then take their bodies, they strip them, and they hang them up on poles to make an example out of them, to show others this is what happens when you obey the God of Israel and rebel against us. And so, no doubt, David ultimately is grieving because of what has happened to God's people. Have you ever felt humiliated? Have you ever had the things that you were leaning on for support stripped from underneath you? And the walls you were leaning on come tumbling down? And the things that you thought you could count on fade away? We all have. We all will face times of humiliation. And right now, as a nation and as individuals, we're going through a humiliating time. The things that we thought we could plan on, that we could count on, that we could rely on, they're not there. And the pride of our nation is being stripped away, and we're all left to wonder what is happening? What is this all about? What is God doing? And the pride of churches, even being able to gather safely in person. While some flaunt the the facts and try to gather anyway, we're trying to be more cautious and more careful. And there's some humiliation in that. What in the world? This this isn't what we're about. We're in the people gathering business, right? (laughs) And look at us. Limited to screens. And so it raises the issue in the face of a humiliating circumstance. In the face of something bad. When something you are depending upon is stripped away. What then? What then? How do we persevere through that? How do we remain faithful to our God and our Savior in the midst of that? Here's what the Holy Spirit teaches us through the example of David here in this first chapter of 2 Samuel. David turned to God. By tearing his clothes, mourning, weeping, fasting, these are actions aimed at God. Why? Because he trusts God 
to be good even when things are bad. He trusts in God to always be good and the giver of every good and perfect gift. So that he doesn't say, God, why are you tempting me? No, he humbles himself in signs of repentance. He prays to God. He calls out to God. And he trusts that God can reveal his good designs even in the midst of our humiliation. And here's the truth I want us to remember today. The more our lives are disentangled from our earthly dependencies, the more we are going to be prepared to see God's good designs. We need to be disentangled from our earthly dependencies. You do, I do, we all do. Because apart from God's intervention, we are all ensnared and entangled in layers upon layers of deception. We deceive ourselves about who we are and about the world and about our place in the world, and we then deceive others. This is the nature of life in this fallen world. And as Sir Walter Scott taught us, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We are all trapped. We are all entangled, whether we want to admit it or not. This is our predicament. And we need God, and we need God's truth, His Word of truth, to deliver us and to, to disentangle us from these cords of death. And when He does that, then we are more prepared. We are ready to start seeing God's good designs. God is good. He gives good and perfect gifts. And he has good intentions for his creation. But we won't see those good designs as long as we are enmeshed and entangled in our earthly dependencies. And what do I mean by earthly dependencies? I mean anything that you think you need for your happiness or your contentment. We all have them. And in this life, we're not going to be completely unentangled. To some extent, they're going to linger, but we can be more or less disentangled. And so, my prayer and my goal through this message is that the Spirit of God would work in your heart to show you those earthly dependencies in your life, and by His power and by the grace of God, to begin to disentangle you from them 
so that you can start to see God's good designs in your life and in the world. So what are those earthly dependencies from which you and I need to be delivered and disentangled? The first that we can see in the first four verses is that we need God to disentangle us from the deception of control. The deception of control. And to understand this, we need to know something about what's been happening to David just prior to this. Things in David's life got so bad that he wasn't just an outcast and a fugitive in Israel. Things were so bad that he had to live among the Philistines. Yes, the Philistines, the people of Goliath, for his own safety. And while he tried to remain as loyal to God as he could in the midst of that, he was nevertheless willing, as we read in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, to fight with the Philistines against Israel. But the Philistines don't trust him, and so he's not forced to make that choice. But as he is leaving this battlefield, he goes back to his home in Siklag with his other companions, and what do they find but that the Amalekites, a tribe of people who have tried to interfere with Israel's life ever since they came out of Egypt and who have been under God's condemnation ever since then, they have attacked David's household. They've carried off his family. They've taken all of his companions' possessions, and they've left it in ruins. They've taken his family to sell them into slavery. And David is grieved initially, He finds strength in God, even though his companions want to stone him and kill him, and he leads them into battle. They are victorious. They get their families back. They go back to Ziklag. They're spreading this wealth that they have taken from the Amalekites all over Israel. They're having a good time, but simultaneously with David's rise and joy, Saul and his sons are defeated by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa north of where David is in Ziklag. And what we see is how, in one moment, David is rejoicing in victory and triumph. And in the next moment, he is tearing his clothes in agony and grief. And we need to know that life will be that way sometimes. And what we need is for God to disentangle us from the deceit and the deception of believing that we're in control of our lives. We are not. It's a lesson that I find myself having to reiterate over and over again to our boys, especially to our seven-year-old who, as the older brother, thinks that he can dictate what games he's going to play with his four-year-old brother. And so we find ourselves saying often, 
You're not the boss. You're not the boss. You don't get to control your brother. It's, it's a truth that we have to reinforce with, with, with children. And yet, even as adults, we still operate in this fantasy that somehow we're in control of our destiny. We're not at any given moment. God can bring humiliation into our lives. And as sinners in the midst of a fallen world, God is always right in doing that. It's no stain on God or God's character that he allows what he allows. You are not in control of your life. Who is? Remember those words from 1 Samuel chapter 2 on the lips of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, where she says in verse 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is in control? The Lord God Almighty. And if he is in control, how then are we to live? What are we to do? In the face of humiliation, humble yourself. Don't become puffed up with pride and thinking that somehow you are in control or, or that somehow you can interpret exactly why this happened or that you can fix this. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and trust him in his own time and in his own way to raise you up. Humble yourself. David is humbled in the face of this humiliation. Next, we need to focus on this Amalekite informant. Because through his example, we see that God disentangles us from what I'm going to call the deception of conquest. The deception of conquest. While David is humbled in the face of this humiliation, this Amalekite seems to think that he can capitalize on this circumstance, that he can profit by it, that he can gain something by it. And to understand what's really going on, we need to back up for just a moment and flip a page over maybe to chapter 31 to recall what the narrator has already told us about how Saul died. And what has he told us? If you look at verse 4, chapter 31, verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died 
with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. So that's what really happened. We can trust the narrator here. And given that background, we know that this Amalekite is lying. He is practicing to deceive. And oh, what a tangled web he weaves when he does so. He says that he was there with Saul as Saul was in his death throes and that Saul asked him to run him through and that he obliged. And that's why he has Saul's crown and the armband that belonged to Saul. And he thinks, wrongly, that he can then profit by this by coming to David, whom he knows to be the the next king of Israel, and can present himself to David and that David will be pleased with this. And we don't know exactly if David sees through the deceit or not. But we know that justice is served in the end. He is nothing more than a flatterer who thinks that he can gain by Saul's downfall and by Israel's humiliation. And it raises the issue for you and for me. What are you living for? If you think about your earthly entanglements and your earthly dependencies, who or what are you living for? If for some reason I end up having to do your funeral, I want you to know what I typically ask your family. What mattered to this person? What was important to him or to her? And I hear typically all kinds of good answers that we can rejoice in. They love their family. They worked hard. They had a will to live. They were determined. They were kind. They were generous. That's all well and good. But at the end of your life, all of those things are gone. And what is left is you and your standing before God. Remember those words from James 1. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The people who have a lot to show for their lives, it won't last. And that's why he says those who are in humble circumstances, those who don't have much in terms of this world, they can boast, they can, they can give thanks to God that their vision and their life isn't clouded by all of those accoutrements. They have God if they're a believer. And yet, how often do we live our lives by conquest and thinking that we need to accomplish something? 
How often do you look at your life and you evaluate your life based on what you have or what you don't have or what you've done or haven't done? Look, my prayer for whoever does my funeral is that they can say without stutter, stammer, or apology that he lived for the glory of God above all. And he relied upon Jesus above all. What matters is not your conquest in life, whether you've lived the American dream or you haven't. What matters, what matters is what matters in the grand scheme of history. The conquest of the kingdom of God that he brings, not you, not me. We don't build the kingdom. God brings the kingdom. And God is sovereign over the kingdom. And so what matters is the advance of his kingdom and his glory that all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God, by the power of his Holy Spirit and his grace, disentangle you and disentangle me from the deception of conquest and measuring our life or the life of others on the basis of what we have to show for ourselves rather than on what we say about Jesus and how we live for Jesus. Well, while we don't know if David completely bought into the lie, the deception of the informant, we know that he has more to ask him. If you look at verse 13, David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. What he literally says, he says, I'm a, a, a son of a, a sojourner. He is someone who is an Amalekite, but who lives among the people of Israel. And that's why he would be among Saul and the Israelites on Mount Gilboa. And David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, who did you think you were to take out the one that God had put upon this throne? Then David called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died, for David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. And remember, what makes this passage so bizarre is that it's all based on a lie. <laughs> this guy, if he was there, somehow he was on the battlefield to get Saul's crown and his armband, but he made it all up. All because he thought he could gain by it, but it's all contrived. <laughs> and look at how he suffers. And so the next disentanglement that we need from God is for God to disentangle us from the deception of conscience. The deception of conscience. And here's what I mean. 
we can so easily deceive ourselves and others into thinking that we can escape God's judgment. We mock the judgment of God. It gets ridiculed. <laughs> this idea of this fiery place called hell, come on. Come on. You can't really believe that. And we mock and we ridicule heaven. It's sitting on the clouds with a halo playing a harp, right? Who would want to do that anyway? How many cartoons have you seen with that scene at the pearly gates of heaven? But I want you to know, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And I will reap what I have sown. God will execute His judgment. And to some extent, we can already see His wrath being poured out now. And He is fully right to do that. But one day, you and I will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we can't appeal to anything else that we've done or said. And the reality is that the place the Bible calls hell is so much worse than flames. So much worse. To be deprived of the source of life and the one who gives every good and perfect gift and who brings joy and happiness to have all that stripped away and nothing but misery and tears. And I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Humble yourself in the face of whatever humiliation you are facing. Live for the glory of God and repent while there's still time. Run to God. He has proven His love by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to shed His precious blood for your sins. Run to Him. He stands ready to save you. Come to Him. Don't wait until you're better. Don't wait until you think your life is in order. No, go to Him now, right wherever you are, whether you're in your living room or wherever you are. Cry out to Him, God, I need You. I can't stand before Your judgment seat. Left to myself, I am ensnared and entangled in the webs of deceit and deception. I can't see truth. I can't see your good designs apart from you. Because as this story shows us, God will mete out His judgment. He did it against Saul. He did it against Israel. He did it against this informant. And He will carry out His judgment for all of us. That is certain. So what do we do? Well, in turning to Jesus... We have the promise 
that heaven, a new heaven and a new earth is so much better than any caricature. That is where real life, real paradise, real joy, where there's no need for a hospital room. There's no need for Kleenexes to wipe away your tears. And it's available right now. God right now can start to disentangle your life from all of these lies and all of the deception that we've brought upon ourselves and that we bring upon others. But it starts with your conscience. Left to ourselves, we suppress the truth. We don't want to acknowledge the truth. But by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives, God is showing us, repent while you can. Now, some will dismiss this message and say, well, this is nothing but pie-in-the-sky theology, and what we need to worry about is life on this earth. And I'm not, I'm not so worried about eternity. I'm worried about what's here right now. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you will not really understand your life in this world or your duty in this world until you understand what awaits you in eternity. And when you see that, and you know it really matters at the end, when it's all stripped away, then you are prepared to live in this life and to see the good and the perfect gifts that our Heavenly Father can give to His redeemed children. Now you say, I thought God loved everybody. Indeed, He does. But that will not keep Him from glorifying Himself in executing judgment against sinners like you and me. God's love will not prevent him from sending you or sending me to hell. So repent while you still can. And if you're breathing, if you're alive, then it's not too late. Turn to him now. Come to him. His arms are wide open. And He is powerful to save. And while we may be limited by these screens, God is not, and nothing will hinder God from saving. Praise be to Him for that truth. I pray that you would come to Him now, wherever you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, come to Him in faith. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we acknowledge that apart from Christ, we are created in your image, but we are lost, we are helpless, we are, are ensnared and entangled in webs, thick webs of self-deceit and self-deception. But I thank you, Lord, for your word of truth through which you can redeem us from that sin that only leads to death. And you can give us new birth, new life that has nothing to fear from the grave and that because of Christ has nothing to fear from your final judgment. Lord, Lord, help us to humble ourselves in the face of humiliation. Help us to turn to you. Help us to live for your glory above everything else as you empower us and equip us the work of your Holy Spirit, for we pray all these things 
In the precious, holy, and loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We thank you so much for joining us in worship. We pray you have a wonderful week, and we hope that you'll join us again next week.